we've only touched on it a little bit, but uh, obviously you're part of a side that got all the way to the FA Cup final. You're playing every single week apart from the FA Cup games because you're unable to play a part due to being cup-tied. So everyone wants to get to Wembley and be in the FA Cup final. Nobody wants to be cup-tied. So what, what was it like being part of the side that was on such a phenomenal cup run that yeah. you were playing in every week, but not when it came to the quarter-final, the semi-final, the final? Is that hard? Uh, you will see that I got a big grin on my face because that is, that's a memory that I treasure. So what I did was I embraced it. I became a fan and you got to remember the era. So we're talking 1992 now where there was a little bit of the drinking culture still going on in football. You have to say, um, so I, I took it upon myself to support the lads every step of the way. I went to every single FA cup game, uh, home and away. Um, and I celebrated with the players, with the fans, like you do when you've won an FA Cup tie. And the further we got in the competition, the more celebrating was being done, obviously, because we were the lads were magnificent. And they were beating West Ham and Chelsea and Norwich, all teams that were, were in the top division. So in answer to your question, I never at any stage felt sorry for myself until the semi-final. And even then, it was only a it was only a um, a fleeting moment where I came out just before the teams who were lining up in the tunnel, and I was going to go and sit on the dugout. I turned uh, towards the dugout, walked towards it, and I just saw that wall of Sunderland fans at Hillsborough, and that that was the only moment where I thought, "Look at what you're missing out on." Look at what you're missing out on. This is the FA Cup semi-final at Hillsborough, uh, a really wonderful traditional venue for, for FA Cup semi-finals. The Sunderland fans had packed it out, making an unbelievable amount of noise, sea of red and white, just a remarkable atmosphere. And, and, and that was the only moment, really, to be honest with you, that I felt a little bit sorry for myself. But, of course, once John Bernard scored, once the game was done, the lads were at the final at Wembley, not an ounce of self-pity. Lots of partying to be done, to be fair. I've alluded to, um, that, was, that, that were a group of lads that, that were pretty good at doing that, celebrating. We did, if I remember rightly, you did like the pen picks and all that, didn't you? On, like, I saw the it the other day for the first time. It's on YouTube. Uh, I, I, somebody told me, in fact, it was Bill Leslie, one of my fellow commentators at Sky. I don't know why and I don't know how that he'd stumbled across it but he said you do realize that's on and I, I said no I had no idea so so I ran over and stuck it on I mean <laughs> uh, some dodgy gear some dodgy gear going on there but um yeah it was in an, it, again it was in a generation where the FA Cup really still was a very 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 special competition and part of it was the day you know you wake up as a young and you're excited you the whole build-up starts quite early in the morning. You see the teams, you know, walking around the grounds. You see them have their pre-match meal. There's interaction. There's cameras on the team bus, which this this was unprecedented um, um, broadcasting, really. It was the only real game where you really got that insight into the players and the build-up to the game. And one of the one of the big parts was was that was always enjoyable was when one of the players, usually a playing player, Gave you a description and a, and a and a bit of a a bit of a pen pick about his teammates, and obviously as the years rolled on, those became funnier and funnier and funnier, and um, and it was my privilege to take the mick out of my uh, 
my Sunderland teammates. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It's one funny sort of memory I have in a sense. And it was just literally because I was looking at old sort of Roker Park photos from uh, the mid nineties. Now we're talking about characters and doing pen picks. And I mean, off the top of my head, the time you were here, the characters that stick out, um, Phil Gray, Vicky Ord, Kevin Ball, um, and the big one for me, uh, Casey, obviously John Kay. Now, yeah, don't forget Rogan, Rogan and Burn. You better not. They'll, they'll tell me off if, if they hear this. Almost too many to mention, wasn't there, in a sense, and oh. those sort of days. I mean, even Gordon Armstrong, Gary Hours, but yeah, the four. Rushy, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. The thing that I Rushy remember Gray, about, right, Blimey, you started us off now. No, I'm Gray. Gray. Is it? Yeah, well, I mean, look, I, I, I've alluded to it earlier in this interview that it was, a, it was an era where there really were some real characters in, yeah. in, in football. And, you know, I spoke about the Bradford City dressing room being the best I ever was in. Um, although we didn't have success on the pitch, the Sunderland dressing room was up there as well with the best of them, I have to say. Great, great set of lads. And we always had each other's back. It always felt almost like it sort of underachieved sometimes. Like the team yeah. was actually really good in terms of ability and stuff. And But going back to sort of the photo I'm, I'm thinking of, I was looking at uh, the photo of John Kay when he breaks his leg. Yeah. And I kind of noticed you're like literally the first person in like the background, like quite close to him, like obviously going over to be like, are you all right? As he's rowing and the look on your face is just like, what is he doing? Like, how is he managing that? But, that the amount of characters in that team, the amount of stories. I mean, obviously, I spoke to John Kane. He's he's actually quite an unassuming kind of guy. That oh yeah, I played football once. But how? What are your best memories of people like John Kane, Kevin Ball, people like that? Oh, how long have you got? Good grief! Um, but John Kane, Kevin Ball, all day. <laughs> all day, I know. I mean, the first thing I have to say is that me, um, Rogie, and Bernie. Um, we all signed at a similar time and therefore we were all in um, the hotel in Durham together for a long period, actually, before our families eventually moved, moved up. So, so we three, we were, we were notorious in that dressing room as being a three that you couldn't really split up and we did an awful lot of stuff together. Um, a lot of it that thankfully happened before camera phones and things like that. We had loads of, we just had a whole load of all honest, honest fun that would be unbecoming of a professional footballer in this, in this day and age, you know? So, um, yeah, look, characters, I think, I think one of the things that I'll never forget involves Borley and, and Casey was there and the lad, all of the lads were there. But we were at our Christmas party. For some reason, we decided that we'd go down to the quayside and, you know, have a night out or a day out in Newcastle. And of course, the drinks are flowing. It comes to the end of the night. And you've probably read about it. You've probably heard about it. But, you know, um, it just highlights, particularly Kevin Ball, but the unity that we, that, 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 that we had within the dressing room. Um, it all kicked off. There was a stink bomb dropped. The bouncers blamed us. It wasn't us, to my knowledge. I still don't know to this day. And they singled me out, got a bit rough with me. I ended up on the floor and having a row, and they were trying to lay into me. And Kevin Ball just dived on top of me and covered me up, literally. Now, what does that tell you about him? He was the captain. He was the leader. He was the protector. He, it just tells you everything you need to know about 
about Kevin Ball. He ended up with a, plenty of bruising and cracked ribs, and I ended up sort of having a few words with the, the constabulary afterwards, and they took me away, give me time to cool down for a couple of hours uh, at their pleasure. So my point being is that we were together. We were all together. We were all protective of each other. Whether or not the motivation from those Newcastle uh, bounces down at the quayside was, oh, look at them, Sunderland, can't have this. Whether they were intended to kick off at any opportunity, I don't know. Only they, only they know. But you know that is one of the stories that I'm happy to share uh, with uh, with everybody, just to say how unified and what a, what a great spirited dressing room I was in. Another person who yeah, sadly isn't uh, with us any longer was uh, it's Tim Carter. Now it's funny. The more people that I I speak to um, from that era. Tim, yeah. is it true that Tim Carter used to have like uh, a penchant for just kissing people, like directly straight on the lips? Just used to love kissing them for because John Kay's told me, Bawley's told me. There's all these different places you've gone. Oh, he, apparently he's a fantastic character. Was Tim Carter? Yeah. You say character, and, and you know it keeps cropping up in this uh, in this interview, doesn't it? The word character. Timmy rest his soul was a serious character. Just, I mean, you could borderline crazy, borderline yeah. crazy. Forgive me, you'll forgive me for that, I'm sure. But he was larger than life, Tim. He was, really was larger than life. And for much of his Sunderland career, he played second fiddle to, to, to big Tony Norman. And, and yet, you never saw any resentment. You never saw anything but a smile on his face, life and soul. Did some crazy things. Kissing anybody and everybody would be one of the things he wouldn't be averse to. But yeah, what, 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 a, what a character. Sad, sadly missed. Sadly yeah, missed. very much so. By by everyone I've ever spoke to you as part of that team as well, very much so. Talking about goalkeepers, I think it was Andy Melville actually that might have scored. It might have been yourself. And you go to retrieve a ball now. Game against Millwall. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing that this is kind of probably the first memory that a lot of people think of when you mentioned Don Goodman and Sunderland. You know what, it's when a you compliment. When you, when you mentioned Big Bad Don. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's yeah, where it came that's from. That's the Big Bad Don, that was. <laughs> <laughs> As I remember, kind of a meaningless early round league cup game. Well, no game's meaningless, but you know where I'm coming from. It wasn't a big league game. It wasn't a Saturday afternoon. I think it was a Tuesday or Wednesday night. 2-0 down at the, I think would have been the new then at that point. Uh, we get one back. I think it was Melville that scored. I think Melville gets a header in. You've got to get the ball back and think, right, let's try and get the, the second. Casey Keller decides no. And then all of a sudden, Casey Keller's hit with a flying mallet, potentially. <laughs> um, I wish it had have been. <laughs> what, what, what are your memories of that? Because it's such a, it's such an iconic moment to me as a Sunderland fan, and, and a lot of people remembering that. And Casey Keller got absolute hell for years. Yeah, still probably yeah. probably still would if he was still playing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you've described it almost perfectly in that they were two 0 up. It was in the very last embers of the game. We got a goal back, as you do. You rush in to get the ball to get back to give yourself one last chance and Casey just got there ahead of me and he wasn't letting go of that ball and in his attempt to keep it from me he actually swung around and he caught me flush on the chin with his elbow now when I'm a pundit on Sky Sports and I'm analysing misconduct and thinking what on earth I have to just sometimes hold and go that there are occasions where the red mist will come down like Eric Cantona will vouch for that, I'm sure, where you just lose all control. It might have been the only 
the only occasion. Some people might find one or two others, but it's certainly one of the rare occasions where I absolutely lost control. And the reason you described it almost perfectly is that the right hand that I delivered to Mr. Keller's chin, it wasn't like a mallet. It was one of my big regrets. It, 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 it was a glancing blow. It wasn't flush. And I always think if you're going to get a red card, you might make might sure it's it. something, something good. So, no, I'm joking aside. Actually, I've come across Casey many, many times since. I know we have a laugh about the abuse that Sunderland fans continued to deliver on my behalf. And again, grateful to Sunderland fans uh, for that. But I get on well with him. He's actually a great guy. But yeah, it is, like you say, it is a memory. Um, not one that I'm particularly proud of, but one that even now still gets talked about. It's funny with uh, Casey Keller and that whole situation. It's like you think of the goals that you scored, you think of the games that you played, the last-minute winner against Leicester, all that kind of stuff. But it's almost like I feel the fact that from... You know, like I say, I started going to football matches in 93. I think that happened in 92, 93. I think that happened in 93. Casey yeah. Keller retired with, I think it was Fulham or Spurs, 2008. So we're talking, what, 16 years there. That he still got abused from an early yeah. round League Cup game 16 years prior, almost a whole new generation. People knew about Casey Keller. But do you think that speaks volumes for how much like Sunderland fans actually quite liked you in red and white that they would still give him shit <laughs> for that long just because we're like I remember when he got Don sent off 16 years ago yeah. in a League Cup yeah. game that didn't really matter essentially but you you got him sent off it's kind of a compliment isn't it oh yeah absolutely I look I mean I get so many nice things said about me uh spoken about me face to face told to me from Sunderland fans. In this lockdown that we're currently in, I've had three three fan batches of photos for me to sign. All three from Sunderland fans. All three of them. And I think that, you know, I'm happy to do that. That's absolutely not a problem. But it, it just, it makes me glow that, um, and, and, and I'm on the after dinner circuit. And when I go up, up to the Northeast as well, the reception I get... <laughs> makes me glow none more so than last may and i'm really sorry for bringing this up because it was a sad day someone lost the playoff final to charlton i was down there and 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 everybody is trooped out of wembley all the summoned fans in their masses and masses and i'm walking up the hill to go and have a beer and the Sunderland fans it's it's the dads you know saying nudging their young ones going oh he was a good player and blah 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 and it and it just it just blew me away. It, it honestly, it, it it blew me away with um, the love they showed me, the respect they had for me. I know that I left, and you know the irony is that the, the jokes on me because it was only a couple of years after I left that Sunderland were in the Premier League, Peter Reid and all them. So, so I have I have served my punishment, Sunderland fans. For those of you that still um, haven't forgiven me for leaving, but uh, yeah, no. I, every time I. I go up the northeast, or I'm in contact with anybody from Sunderland. The reception is it, it, it gives me a warm glow and a, a sense of pride. And I know that it's not because I was an amazing, the best player in Sunderland's history, an amazing player or whatever. But I know it's because they appreciated everything that I left out there on the pitch. I know it's because they appreciated the blood that I spilled, of which there were many. My head's like a roadmap. I can verify for that. <laughs> um, and I know it was just that sheer all-out effort that I gave and I gave it for me but I also I also gave it for them and I know that it's uh, I know that it's really appreciated up there 
When it comes to the managers that you played under, um, obviously we've, I've kind of totally gone past them. Um, Crozer obviously being there as well, and yeah, he, obviously the FA Cup run he's, he's remembered for. I think in, in my mind's eye, he was probably too nice of a guy at the time, and it did feel a little bit like we underachieved for the players that we had in the squad. But then Terry Butcher came in. Now Terry Butcher is obviously iconic for you know many reasons, and, and specifically as a player, you obviously played with him as well. I think just before then. Um, Things didn't quite go right for Terry. And I think it wasn't really helped by a, a particular car crash beforehand. I think with Fer- Derek Ferguson, I think it was, if, if I remember rightly. But um, when it comes to Terry Butcher, why, why do you think it didn't work with Terry Butcher? Because obviously he was a respected member of the squad as well, I think, before he went yeah. into a manager. It's a very, very difficult question to ask because you're talking about a man who played 77 times for England. You're talking about a man who knew the game inside and now, quite earlier in this uh, in this interview about sometimes it's about being in the right place at the right time, and just maybe maybe he was in the wrong place at, at, at the wrong time, Terry, when he when he crosser went and he took over, having been a player. So sometimes it's hard for a player to go from being a player to being a gaffer. Um, I can't remember it being a problem for me, uh, to be yeah. honest, but there are players, players are human beings and we all deal with different things in different ways. Maybe struggle to motivate certain players and get the best out of certain players. The car crash that you alluded to, the, the, the pre-season, he brought in um, some good players, obviously Tippy, he brought in Derek Ferguson, who was a great player. Uh, he brought in Ian Rogerson, he brought in Andy, Mel- Andy Melville, who would, would go on to have a good career at Sunderland. So he brought good players in. Have a a car crash to disrupt that through injury. Then he would, as a manager, he would be having to deal with the press on how all of the things and the ramifications of that. What is Derek Ferguson doing, crashing a car with four other, you know, three other players in it, and so on and so forth. So it was an awful lot to deal with in in Terry's defence. I just wonder whether that was the the thing because he'd had a go at Coventry at being a manager. Um, he went up to Scotland and and. And, and did okay, as I yeah. recall. Yeah, he did but all right. never yeah. really reached the heights. Yeah, never really reached the heights that we would have thought a man of his football in Naus would. And it just goes to show um, there are many, many examples of brilliant, brilliant players that just don't translate that into a managerial or a coaching career. Loads and loads of examples. I'm not going to name them because that would be disrespectful. People will think of many, I'm sure. And maybe it was just... It's just another statistic in 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 that regard that um, you know it wasn't to be for him. When you look at his managerial career overall, it probably didn't go as well as Terry would have wanted it to. As it was with Sunderland, obviously Mick Buxton took over, and it's it's not remembered in the best way as a, as a fan, I suppose. But he actually did steady us the first season. He managed to keep us like mid table, and then it. It sort of started to unravel a little bit. I think we signed like Brett Angel, I think it was, which uh, didn't really work out. The typical Sunderland, he sc- always scored against us, always scored against us after <laughs> he left. Could never score for us, couldn't hit a, a bondo. Uh, he couldn't hit a bondo with a banjo. But you hey, know, listen, that, uh, listen, Sunderland fans aren't on their own in having strikers that, that have done that to other clubs. Trust me. And I think I think he scored. I think I worked out the percentage once that he, he scored like eight times the amount against us than he did for us in like. I think half the games, which is just that's Sunderland all over that. But that's again, that's, he's a, Brett, Brett. Brett is another. He's another good lad that I came across in football. He was at Walsall when I was at Walsall, and Brett, I remember, scored a hat trick, and he must go down in history as one of the few players 
He scored a hat-trick in the last league game of the season after Walsall. We'd already secured a playoff place and Ray Graydon had rested me. Brett had been on the bench and I'd been starting. And he started Brett in the last game of the season. It was away at Northampton and he scored a brilliant hat-trick and played really, really well. And then, of course, he got dropped for the first leg, the first leg of the playoffs away at Stoke, where, where Ray Graydon brought me back in. So he must be one of the only players ever to score a hat-trick, play brilliant, and then get dropped for the, the next game. So that's my that's my Brett Angel story. Brett Angel's really, yeah, bad times as a Sunderland fan. Now. But like I say, he even came back for Stockport and scored against us at the stadium. It's like he always yeah. scored against us, always. Um, as it was with, with Sunderland, like I say, Mick Buxton, it didn't really work out towards the end. And, you know... I think it was the December time, and I think he got sacked in the March or the April, and then really came in. Um, Wolves make a bid. I think it was at the time they said it was a million pound, but they got the figure wrong, didn't they? It was actually it wasn't a million; it was a bit more than that, wasn't it? When it happened, is that right? When I went to Wolves, yes, yeah, uh, it was one point two down payment, and it was a uh, hundred thousand after the first twenty games, and it was a hundred thousand after the next twenty games. So it was basically by the time we're done, it was one point four. 1.4 million. Yeah. Which again, it was a, a lot of money. Um, you know, I had regrets leaving Sunderland, obviously. Um, but at the time, I couldn't really see Sunderland getting to the Premier League in the guys that that it, it in the in the place that it was at at that time. Whereas I was. Still, although I was on a long scoreless uh, run at the time I left for Wolves, actually, but um, Graham Taylor had seen enough of me in previous encounters and had me scouted. Obviously, liked what he liked what he saw. Um, another wonderful influence on my career that's no longer here. Again, um, you know, it's it's sad, really, but it only goes to show the age that I'm getting at more than anything else, unfortunately. So, yeah, it was a wrench to leave Sunderland, but again, a little bit like the. Um, the reasons that I left West Bromwich Albion to come to Sunderland, it was the clock was ticking now, and it was it was about getting to the Premier League. Wolves were up there at the top end of the, the Championship. Graham Taylor as a manager, had Steve Bull up front, David Kelly up front, had Steve Froggett on the left wing, Tony Daly on the right wing. You know, it was a good team. It was a good team, and I was ninety nine point nine percent certain that 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 club would get me to the Premier League that season as well so um, whilst it was a wrench yeah it, it was a selfish decision in terms of having to do what's right for you as an individual and uh, and your family um, you know um, but it was a move that I, I felt that I simply had to make It's funny you mentioned a few of the players there as well and I'm, obviously in these interviews I try to take my son and head off which can be hard um, but I mean I, I, I I was understanding football at that point. Obviously, I was heartbroken. I think you were the top scorer at the time, so I was devastated at the time. But you're right in what you're saying. I know we got promoted like a season later and won the league, but no one could have foreseen the turnaround Peter Reid had. And I think Wolves at the time were third when you left. And I, I just made a list of the players that were playing at Wolves at that point. Um, and you mentioned a few of them, but you've got like Steve Ball, Jeff Thomas, Dean Richards, a young Dean Richards was in the squad then, Tony Daly, Froggett. You're talking about two really fast, good, delivery from both of them on the wingers you played in a lot of really good sides but I know it didn't maybe hit the level where it should have been but that Wolves team just reading through the names do you think that's one of the best in terms of talent was that the best team you've been in yeah yeah I I don't doubt that and I don't say it lightly and I don't say it disrespectfully because a football Mm -hmm. team is a collective and actually if you go beyond that it's 
a football squad. So there's even other players. I'd say Gordon Cowns was... I, I could all, I could make a case for Gordon Cowns being the best player that I ever played with. I, I genuinely, genuinely could. But that team, you've, named, you've rattled off. I signed on the same day as John DeWolf, the, 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 the Dutch centre-half that broke England. Wow, that's a throwback. Jeez, yeah, John DeWolf. So... Let me tell you, we had, we had, I think we had the best team in the league. But again, it was a case of not just lacking that little bit of consistency. Basically, we were a team that with those players that you've just described, we were always going to score an awful lot of goals. And yeah. we did. And we would draw 3-3, win 4-3, lose 4-3. We had goals coming out of our ears, for want of a better expression. <laughs> and um, <laughs> But... Sadly, we 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 were so expansive that, that, that we didn't really defend well, and, and I don't just blame the uh, the defenders or, or, and the goalkeeper for for that because they were they were brilliant players in their own right. But maybe maybe we didn't offer them the kind of protection as a team that that that, that, that we could have really. Um, so it, yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. We I think we were third, and I think that's where we ended and ended up playing Bolton Wanderers in. Um, in the playoffs and in lockdown I've managed to force myself to have a look at the, those two games against Bolton Wanderers and how on earth we didn't thrash them is one of the mysteries we all, we all play and we all see games where you leave afterwards and you think how on earth has that result just happened how has that team beat that team or how has that team not won such was the dominance and first leg at Molyneux in the in the playoff, Bolton had a goalkeeping problem and they were allowed to sign Peter Shilton, would you believe? Bring Peter out of retirement. I think he was about 75 at the time. <laughs> to be, no, I'm joking, he wasn't. But he, he, he was pretty old, to be fair he to him. He was certainly on the side of 40. And if I say to you that we hit the woodwork five times, um, I hit the woodwork twice, um, and Peter Shilton was man of the match. We won the game 2-1, but the tie should have been over. It, it, it literally, if we'd have beaten Bolton five, six, seven, I don't think anybody could have honestly, hand on heart, complained. Um, but we didn't. We went away to the second leg um, at Burnham Park, the old Burnham Park. John McGinley headed David Kelly and should have been sent off. The referee saw it, but he bottled it, and I maintained that stance till the day I die. Um, and John McGinley, quite obviously what was going to happen, John McGinley scored. We went into extra time. John McGinley scored again. Bolton went on and they ended up the Premier League team. Not us. I remember after, um, after that game, I remember sitting in the centre circle and I, and I shed a tear. And part of the reason I shed a tear was because I was certain that I was going to be a Premier League player. I was certain that we were going to win the playoffs. Um, and it just didn't happen. And it was it felt a little bit unjust at the time. Um, and I also shed a tear because I'd left a club that I loved in order to go and be a Premier League player. It was the whole realisation of, of so many factors um, moulded into one. And I'd say, and I do say publicly, that was the saddest time I ever had on a football pitch. And... I'm not talking about the off-the-field things. Obviously, nothing will ever compare to the Bradford fire. But I'd been relegated with West Bromwich Albion. And it, it hadn't got me as 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 down or to, to the state where I was prepared to 
to to cry in public. So it was a huge, huge um, moment in my career. And of course, I'd go on. We would go on to hit the post many times. Wolves. I'd have some great times with Wolves. Again, it's another club that I love. Lose another playoffs in circumstances again where you could argue that probably should have done better with the players that we had and the team that we had. But yeah, it, it was just that those moments that are. It's fine margins, isn't it? It's absolutely fine margins. And I, and I never, ever got as close to the... Well, no, I did in, in terms of from transfer from transfers being transferred to Premier League teams. That came close a few times. But on the pitch, I never got, got as close as I, I did to that Bolton, um, Bolton Wanderers semi-final. So it was, yeah. Like you say, I mean, I think not long afterwards, I think it was a difficult next season. I think you actually ended up finishing about 20th. Um, I think it was that season, Graham Taylor, either left or got sacked. And well, I think, I think like, um, yeah, like many playoff uh, teams, you suffered a hangover. You know, yeah. the, 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 the gloom hadn't really lifted. And again, Graham Taylor, talk about fine lines. I remember the game that he got sacked afterwards with the last, uh, I was going to say kick of the ball, but it was a header. It was about from about 12 yards out. I, I flung myself at a cross, got a great contact on it, diving header. It bounced into the turf, uh, flew up and crashed off the underside of the crossbar. And if that was the moment that that, that Graham Taylor got sacked, it, 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 it was one of the worst Mistakes Wolverhampton Wanderers have made in their modern history was sacking Graham Taylor. Um, and I often wonder whether if that ball had hit just a couple of millimetres lower and gone into the back of the net, whether Graham Taylor would have, uh, would have stayed and would have, would have got the success that he undoubtedly had within him because they sacked him. He went to Watford, who were in League One, um, got them from League One into the Championship and then the following season got them from the Championship into the Premier League and... You know, Wolves were left to reflect on on what ifs. Look, there was a lot of pressure surrounding Graham Taylor. He'd been the England manager. For me, there was a a real negative uh, clamour within the press to see Graham Taylor fail. So when I arrived at Wolves, I couldn't believe how many of the national press were at Wolverhampton Wanderers games. And it wasn't because Wolves were necessarily a bigger club than Sunderland. It was because Graham Taylor, the former England manager, um, who had failed as an England manager. And he, they, the press never really let that go, I, I felt. And he was never really afforded the, the credit that he, he deserved. He was a brilliant manager. He was one of those managers that I would have ran through a brick, brick wall for. He, he, he actually absolutely knew how to motivate players to go above and beyond. Um, but yeah, we, we, we definitely got a, a playoff hangover. And the irony is, um, when I signed for Wolves, you probably won't realise this, but Graham had stuck me on the right wing because he had he had uh, Bully and he had David Kelly. And he felt that I could be a weapon coming in at the far post with my aerial ability for knockdowns and scoring. And, and, and it worked, actually. The diagonal ball was quite a weapon for Wolves in, in that part of the season. But the following season, he moved me in. And, and the irony isn't lost on me that I had my best goal-scoring season for Wolves. I scored 20 goals that season. Um, I think I got... 13 by the end of October, really. I couldn't miss, and yet the team were down yeah. towards the bottom. And that's the reason that ultimately uh, ultimately Graham uh, lost his job. But I always, um, I always reflect on two things from that era, and one is what would have happened if that header had gone in instead of hitting the underside of the bar. And 
the other one is if what if uh, what if Wolves had been a little more patient with Graham Taylor. As it was, I think Mark McGee came in and you know to to memory. You didn't see eye to eye to memory from the outside looking in, but at the same time, actually looking through your scoring record, you played 25-ish games, six, seven substitute appearances and had a decent goal scoring record really for for that. But it never really worked for you with Mark McGee, did it? It was just not, there was not a chemistry I think, there. I think, I think Mark wanted to come in. Um, <clears throat> what you remember about Mark at the time, and Mark and I get on great now, got absolutely no problems with Mark McGee. But what you remember is that Mark, he, he was a young, successful, up-and-coming, ambitious manager. He had left Reading, if you recall, to go to Leicester. He'd done a brilliant job at Reading, uh, Mark had, with his backroom team. of uh, took them to Leicester, and they were doing well at Leicester, but obviously the temptation to replace Graham Taylor at Wolves, the ambition that Wolves had, which was the when Graham Taylor was selling Wolverhampton Wonders to me, it was all about, it was a question of when this club get to the Premier League, not if the ambition was there. They were spending more money than any other team in the Championship, attracting some top, top players. So uh, but so Mark arrived, obviously, with this, with this ambition, a slightly different way of playing. And Mark was a young up-and-coming manager. And I, by this time, was a senior pro, really, if you like. So I had an opinion. And I won't get away with the fact that I won't have regrets about having an opinion. If ever I felt that something wasn't right tactically or, or whatever, I was never really afraid to voice that opinion right way and a wrong way to, to say anything and do anything. As far as I'm concerned, there's a right way and a wrong way. And I did it always with respect and I did it in the right manner and I did it in the confines of, of, of the football club. It, nothing ever leaked out about me and Mark McGee, not particularly seeing eye to eye. This has all come because I have a laugh about it in my after dinner speaking. So this has all come after football, you know. Um, but yeah, it was a period in my Wolves career where I reflect and I look, Mark was trying to change things again, a little bit like Terry Butchery brought a batch load of new players in and was juggling around with things. And, you know, we got to the semi-final of the FA Cup, which was arguably my best moment in, um, well, the quarterfinal at Ellen Road was my best moment, I scored the winning goal and we got to the semi-final. So we shared some positive experiences, Mark and I, but we suffered that defeat that I was telling you against Crystal Palace in the semi-finals of the... Uh, of the playoffs in the championship so we weren't a million miles away but for the players that we had we, again a little bit like the Graham Taylor we probably should have done a little bit a little bit better but they were honest fallouts there was nothing ever really malicious um, you just you know there are some managers and coaches that you get on better with than others and Mark and I we didn't have an amazing relationship but it wasn't it wasn't an absolute disaster as it was, uh, your next move was probably, especially in those days, although Lineker had just done it, you went to Japan. I did, yeah. Obviously, it didn't last very long, but did you enjoy like that? Did you, did you enjoy it? And would you, would you do it again? I loved it. I thought the timing was right. I was 32. I had a young family. Uh, there was an opportunity to make a good, uh, have a good deal on the table at 32 years old. So now you're thinking about how many years left have you got? Um, how best can you look after your family? So, um, and a life experience opportunity for me and, 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 and my, my wife and two children. 
Um, so I remember we were on holiday in um, in Portugal where I got the call to go to Japan. So me and my ex-wife, as she is now, we, we jumped on a well several planes. It was like planes, trains, and automobiles. <laughs> I had to drive from, from the Algarve up to Lisbon, fly from Lisbon to Madrid, fly from Madrid to Amsterdam, and then fly from Amsterdam across to Holland. But once we got there, I mean, they spoiled you rotten. They looked after you. They sold... If you recall, it was 1998. They had the World Cup in four years' time. They were looking to promote football to a more global audience. Um, and they felt that experienced players like me could actually, on the training ground and in game situations, that the young Japanese um, players could, could learn from having somebody like that around. So, as an experience, I loved it. I absolutely loved it i immersed myself in their culture um i tried to learn the language well i did two hours a day i studied japanese uh to a point where six months later i could i could hold a conversation make wasn't fluent but could could make myself understood and could understand i mean the regret i have about that is that i tore my car my hamstring in the second game so i had scored on my debut and partway through the second game i tore my hamstring and it was a bad it was a real bad tear and it would mean that i would be out for for quite some time really and and ultimately i would only play another eight games for them in the in the period that i was i was there but that was my regret i mean in, in that intermittent period, just after I got fit, I actually got approached to go and play for St. Kitts. That's where my dad uh, uh, was from. St. Kitts approached me to go and play in the Con... Is it the CONCACAF? Con- yeah, the, I know what you mean. Yeah, in yeah. That, in that, <laughs> which would have, it would have been an, It would have been a remarkable experience to go and do, but I would have felt so guilty. Uh, they were paying me a lot of money, uh, San Freche, Hiroshima, um, and I'd literally just got fit. And I couldn't force myself from a moral standpoint to go and uh, to go and do that and the ultimately the reason that I left was two two folds really um number one it was really hard for my for my ex-wife the kids were two and five um in a country where you couldn't take a handbook to a shop with you and say right how do I say uh, I'd like a loaf of bread and read it out yeah. of the book it just, because of the writing and everything couldn't do that. So she found it very, very difficult. So that was one of the reasons we, we, we came home early. And the other one was that the Japanese changed the rule from being allowed four foreign players to um, being restricted to three. So they had to get rid of one of us. So I proposed to them, given the, the circumstances I've just described with how my, uh, my wife was uh, struggling to really settle and embrace uh, Japanese life, it was a no-brainer, really. So I, uh, so I came back. As it was when you, you did come back, I, I'll totally admit, love Scottish football for a million and one reasons. Some hilarious, some good. To just there's nothing like Scottish football, and don't care what anyone says. You went to Motherwell, who, um, yeah, right. They're not Rangers or or Celtic. Fair enough. But Motherwell, obviously, I live quite close to the Fair Park, as it was, what you know, not too long ago. Great little place. Really, really passionate fans. Exactly the same as Rangers and Celtic in terms of passion for their club. Just obviously not quite as big, but. What was your experience of Motherwell? Because it's it's a really nice little little club, isn't yeah. it? I had two great years there. Uh, again, the reason that I went to Motherwell was because Billy Davis sold me the ambition of the football club. So 
that's a recurring theme. If you go back as to why I signed for West Brom, why I signed for Sunderland, why I signed for the Wolves, why I went across to Japan, why I came back and signed for Motherwell, it was the ambition of the football clubs that I was signing for. So Motherwell, had, uh, they had John Spencer up front. They had Andy Gorham in goal. They'd brought Jed Brannan in from uh, Tranmere, who were a championship club at that time. Yeah. Tony Thomas came with Jed Brannan. We had a good team. We had a good team. We had an ambitious team. Um, and then there were young players like Lee McCulloch, who went on to have a great career. James McFadden went on to have a great career. Steve McMillan, left back. And, 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 and plenty of others, to, to, to be fair. I could name them all. They all were great lads and, and had ability. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I absolutely enjoyed living in Glasgow. Uh, a lovely place on the outskirts of Glasgow. By this time, I was loving my golf. Um, my kids were a, a, grew up. My, my little girl, bless her, she actually developed a bit of a Scottish accent, which was the cutest thing. Never laugh about that. Uh, now... Um, and we got close to doing really well. I mean, we beat we beat both Celtic and Rangers in the two years that yeah. I was there. You know, we we could compete. Um, basically, I mean, look the names that I've just rattled off. Good players, really good players. players. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we and we gave it a good fist. We gave it a good fist. Played in the most craziest game I've ever played in uh, when I was at Motherwell. And if I paint a very quick picture, because I know time is 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 pressing, but Aberdeen hadn't won a game, and we were in the back end of October, and they came to Fir Park to play us. I've just described we were a decent team, and you're kind of always at that point you're thinking, please don't let you be the team that they beat, be the first <laughs> team they beat that season. And anyway, long story short, they beat us six five. It was the most bizarre and remarkable game that I, I've ever been involved in, I've ever seen. Um, and this is the remarkable part about it, Graham. The best two players on the pitch were the two goalkeepers. <laughs> was that Andy Gorham? Unbelievable. So I, I do it as a bit of trivia when I'm having a laugh. So name the goalkeepers. Obviously, I've told you, Andy Gorham, yeah. And who was in goal for Aberdeen? God, what year would that have been? 2002? About 2000, 2001. Well, 99. 1999 I got there. So 2000, around about 2000. Goalkeeper for Aberdeen. Good trivia. I don't think you'll get it. No. Jim Layton. Oh, I was going to say Jim Layton and I couldn't quite oh, yeah. decide if, if he'd been there. And I'm thinking, was yeah, he there? Yeah, he was. So, two iconic scores. Scottish goalkeepers that were coming to the very end of their careers uh, were by far and away the best two players on the pitch in a game that finished Aberdeen 6, Motherwell 5. So, yeah, I, I, I do. I still talk about my days at Motherwell. Um, it was tough, really, going there. Um, I think there was a little bit of resentment uh, when I arrived, really. I remember in the early days, there were... There were some boos when my name was announced before that from my own fans, but water off a duck's back. Um, by the end of that six months, they'd voted me as their player of the year, the Motherwell fans. So, you know, I've always had a good relationship with them and uh, obviously wish them continued success. The wonder of Scottish football. And trust me, there's so much wonder in that. <laughs> uh, or banter, some might say, but there you go. Banter, yeah, banter, yeah. 
I'm hoping it was the English thing anyway that they didn't like. That's well, so. I can after living in Scotland for as long as I did, I can say, yeah, probably was. There's a few times I've had English this, English that, but they're lovable and I love them. And I, I, I love Scotland more than anything. Final question, I suppose, which is probably one of the biggest ones. Obviously, uh, you came back to England from Motherwell. Uh, you did sort of end up finishing your career. I think firstly you went to, to Warsaw, then you went to Exeter, and I think you had a little bit of a spawn in the non-league. But I think you would have been 34, 35, uh, possibly 35 by the time the game was there. Higher, higher. Higher. 36, 37, 45. I retired at 37, yeah. But you were close, 37. But when you went to Wembley, obviously one of the most memorable moments of anyone's career must be scoring at Wembley. Now, I actually if you scored the equaliser or the winner. And I sat and watched it before this, the Walsall versus Reading game, uh, which would have been, I think would have been Division 2 at the time, but obviously class as League 1 now. Um, yeah, you've got a Really good game, actually. So you're yeah. 35, you must think, yeah, yeah I'll go to Walsall, enjoy, you know, whatever I've got left in my career here. And you end up going to Wembley and scoring. How memorable is, is that, at that age in your career, the score at Wembley? Well, I could say that was the best day of my life. It wasn't at Wembley, though, unfortunately. It was... The Millennium Stadium, Cardiff. Was that Millennium Stadium? Ah, so it was. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what? It's still, it was, yeah. No, it's still, it didn't matter to me, really. Um, I got to, as it goes, I got to play at Wembley some years later in a, in a charity game for Jeff Thomas and his, and his charity. I got to seal the deal. I didn't score, but I got to play at Wembley. I loved it. I loved the Millennium Stadium. I loved playing for little old Walsall. Um, we had beaten Stoke City in the semi-finals. Yeah. You know? uh, so we were up against the Stokes of this world and the Reddings of this world, who literally within a very short space of time after we'd beaten them, Reading, would be in the Premier League. So yeah, yeah. we were little old Walsall trying to um, trying to cause the upset. I mean, they had, uh, they'd spent money on players. They were playing players, players high wages. They had probably three times as many supporters in the Millennium Stadium. But that game, it was in the days when playoff finals weren't safe and oh, we better not lose it. or It was when everybody just just had a go and you try to win it. You don't want no regrets. And it was a great game. I remember it. I remember the equaliser because I lost my mind for uh, 10 seconds. And it was the only time that I ran off towards the corner flag and tried, tried being the operative word to do the, the Klinsman dive. So I was very quickly, very quickly up to my feet. Um, because we had a game to win. So, um, yeah, I mean, it twists and turns. And then, long story short, ultimately Darren Byfield comes off the bench and smacks a brilliant, brilliant goal into goal. Uh, to win it. And I, Now, the celebrations for me were a little bit different because normally when you win a playoff final, you go and you'd be crazy and you'd be with your team mates and things like that. But I looked at the, uh, the Reading players and... I thought, I can't go and celebrate until I've gone around every single one of them. So I went around them all. They were sat on the floor. Some of them were in tears. Some of them were okay. And I commiserated with them. And then I I, I, I went off. And then I had the match interview with um, Sky. They gave me man of the match. I had, so I had the interview with that. And by the time I'd done that, so, sort of a lot of the photos and some of the photos. So if you see some of the photos and I'm not on there, that's the... Uh, that's the reason why. So, um, but I don't regret it because I think you have to have that empathy yeah. um, in life. Uh, I had suffered. I already described to you in this podcast about the lowest moment in my career, and that was a semi-final that I lost. Let alone 
a final. So I had empathy for the Reading players. Um, and thankfully for them, they bounced back and they were soon in the Premier League. So, um, no, a wonderful occasion. And at the age of 35, you're absolutely right. My best day in football. Don, thank you very much. Absolutely my pleasure. <laughs>